When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, Greg Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. We continue our journey through the early 1900s as we reach the year 1902. On January 5th, Myrtle Cook was born. Cook excelled at hockey, bowling, and cycling in tennis and won the gold medal in the 4 by 100 meter relay at the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics. Following the 1928 Olympics, she would continue to compete before retiring from competition in 1931. She would help to establish the Toronto Ladies Athletic Club, the first of its kind in Canada. Widely respected, she would coach the men's baseball team, the Montreal Royals, in base running techniques, and during the Second World War, she was involved in training military recruits. She served on nearly every Canadian Olympic and Commonwealth Games committee from 1932 to 1972, giving her the honour of taking part in 11 Olympic Games in one form or another, and she passed away in 1985. On April 14th, Olive Freeman was born in Roland, Manitoba. She grew up on the Canadian prairies and met John Diefenbaker in Saskatoon at a church where her father worked just after the First World War. She eventually went on to become a high school teacher and married Harry Palmer in 1933. He sadly died in 1936 and she began working for the Ontario Department of Education. In 1951, she met Diefenbaker again and they married in 1953. Diefenbaker's first wife had died in 1951. She remained married to Diefenbaker until her death in 1976. During their marriage, John Diefenbaker served as the Prime Minister of Canada from 1957 to 1963. In her life, she supported women's rights and was noted for her skill with French. I sometimes feel that this is an awfully long, long way from Prince Albert. It is a long way, Joyce. We've just come from Prince Albert now, and it's a long way to Prince Albert. But, uh, well, we're here. And then we're home in Prince Albert, and, and uh, you don't think much about the process of getting back and forth. Is there anything you miss about, about the old way of oh, life? Oh, I miss Prince Albert a great deal. I miss, uh, yes, I do, but 
the fact is, you know, each day is so full, so full to the top, that there's not much looking back or looking forward you live in, no. in the day. This is such a beautiful staircase. I love this. I, I, this is, to me, one of the loveliest things in the house. It's the kind of staircase you could come floating down wearing a ball gown. I, I say it's the kind of house somebody should get married. It's the kind of stairway someone should get married down. I think it would be a lovely stairway for a bride. You often come floating down wearing a ball gown? I often come down wearing a ball gown. Whether I float is another matter. On May 24th, Victoria Day was celebrated as a legal holiday for the first time in Canada. This was done to honour Queen Victoria, who had died the previous year. Outside Canada, Empire Day was celebrated throughout the British Empire, but in Canada it was Victoria Day. In 1977, Victoria Day was made the first Monday before May 25th. On May 29th, Ontario went through a provincial election. The Liberals would once again win a majority, the party's ninth consecutive, but this time they lost a seat to finish with 50. The Conservatives, in contrast, continued to rise and finished with 48 seats, only two away from tying the Liberals. Due to the fact that it was so close, most newspapers wouldn't report on who had won the election until the day after. The Halifax Herald reported, the news of the Ontario elections received up to the present writing indicate that the contest has been a close one and serve in doubt the final result. It may not be possible for even a day or two after the election to say with certainty which side is actually ahead. Finally, the results came in and the newspapers, the ones that supported the Liberals, launched into praise of the government on its victory. One newspaper stated in bold letters, Ontario continues true to her old allegiance. This was the last election win for the Liberals until 1934. On June 19th, Guy Lombardo was born in London, Ontario. In 1914, he performed in public for the first time, and by the 1920s, he was becoming one of the top musicians on the continent. His New Year's Eve radio broadcast began in 1929 and continued for decades, into the era of television. With his brothers, who formed the Royal Canadians, it's believed they sold between 100 and 300 million albums in their lifetime. On July 1st, the Raymond Stampede was held for the first time. It was held in a vacant lot as part of the town's first Canada Day celebration. And it continues to run to this day, and it's not only Alberta's oldest rodeo, but it's also Canada's oldest professional rodeo, predating the Calgary Stampede by a decade. This is also the first time the word stampede was used for a rodeo, and hundreds of spectators came out to watch it. For bronc riding, the horses were blindfolded and the cowboys simply stayed on the horse until they fell off or the horse stopped bucking. The entire idea for the stampede came about from Raymond Knight, who was a local rancher, and for that reason he's called the father of Canadian stampedes. On August 11th, Norma Schur was born in Montreal. In 1920, she had moved to New York and began acting with the Ziegfeld Follies before moving on to appear in movies as an extra. In 1923, she moved to Hollywood, and she soon began to make a name for herself, and within a year was making $5,000 per week in the movies. By the time the 1930s began, she was called the Queen of MGM and was one of the most famous actors in the world. She continued to act until her retirement in 1942, and she passed away on June 12, 1983. In her acting career, she was nominated for an Academy Award as Best Actress six times, winning in 1930 for her role in The Divorcee. In fact, in 1930, she was nominated for two different roles. On November 20th, the railroad reached Edmonton for the first time. 
It had been built to Strathcona a decade previous, but it was not until the Low Level Bridge was built in 1900 that the railroad could cross the North Saskatchewan River and reach Edmonton. This spurred on the growth of the city and the eventual amalgamation with Strathcona a decade later. On November 21st, the SS Bannockburg disappeared in Lake Superior. The ship was sailing out of an area near current-day Thunder Bay, carrying 85,000 bushels of wheat on November 20th, 1902. As she headed towards Georgian Bay, the ship suffered a slight grounding, but with no apparent damage, it left the next day. The captain of the Algonquin would see the ship later that day, stating he viewed the ship several times, but then it was suddenly gone when he looked up again. He blamed it on foggy weather and forgot about it. The ship was never seen again and still has not been found. That night, a powerful storm hit Lake Superior, and the crew of the Heronic reported seeing another ship's lights in the storm, but no signals of distress were reported. The next day, the Bannockburn was reported as overdue, but due to the storm, it was believed the ship was delayed. On November 25th, the John D. Rockefeller passed through a field of floating debris that could have been from that ship, but at the time, the ship had not been reported as lost. It would not be until November 30th that the ship was officially given up as lost. On December 12th, a captain of a life-saving ship found a cork life preserver from the Bannockburn, the only piece of wreckage ever recovered from the ship other than an oar that was also found. Within one year, people on the Great Lakes began to report her as a ghost ship, and to date, the wreck of the ship has never been found and no bodies have ever been recovered. The same day that ship disappeared, Edward Pryor was made the Premier of British Columbia, succeeding James Dunsmuir. Pryor only served as Premier until June 1, 1903, when he was dismissed by the Lieutenant Governor due to charges of conflict of interest. He remains the last Canadian Premier to be dismissed by a Lieutenant Governor. Ironically, on December 9, 1919, he became the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, remaining in the post until his death on December 12, 1920. After developing an interest in radio, he became a reporter with the Toronto Star knowing that they were going to launch their own radio station. On February 16, 1923, he made his first broadcast of a hockey game. He became such a fixture of hockey on the radio that on November 12, 1931, he was part of the opening ceremonies of Maple Leaf Gardens and had a special gondola built for himself to broadcast the games from. For four decades, he was Canada's play-by-play -play broadcaster on Hockey Night in Canada, where he used the phrase, he shoots, he scores. He continued to handle the play-by-play -play until he retired from broadcasting in 1968. He came out of retirement in 1972 to broadcast the Summit Series, and he passed away on April 21, 1985. Shoots, he scores! Has identified Foster Hewitt to the Canadian public for the past 55 years. Yes, it was 55 years ago today that Foster Hewitt first used that phrase in his very, very first radio hockey broadcast from the Mutual Street Arena in Toronto. We welcome a Canadian hero to Morningside. Good morning, Foster Hewitt. Good morning, Don, and thank you very much. Did I say the truth? Well, you uh, spread it out a bit. <laughs> we, well, there were goals scored in that game. Sure. Oh, yes, of course. And did you say he shoots, he scores that way? That's right. That's when it was born. And uh, it apparently has stuck fairly generally all through the, uh, the broadcasting of hockey. It's sort of a symbol of national unity, I think. Well, it's a, a very quick way to, to express yourself, I think. If you were in Trafalgar Square or any other part of the world, if you shouted that, any Canadian nearby would come to you immediately. 
cluster around. I believe that's true. Uh, it seemed to hit a note anyway. Do you remember anything about that first game? Uh, in pieces, Don. I, uh, I always remember uh, that uh, I was coming... I was a reporter at the Star at the time and in the promotion department as well. And uh, I came in after an assignment. It was around 6 o'clock at night. And Basil Lake, who was the radio editor at the time, met me at the door and said, I have another assignment for you. And uh, I kind of looked blank, and he said, you're going to do a hockey game. So he started your career? Oh, yeah. well, on hockey, yes. I'd been on radio since 1922. On November 23rd, Eddie Shore was born in Fort Capel. Growing up on a ranch near Cooperton, Saskatchewan, he spent his time breaking horses, herding stock, and hauling grain. All of this helped form him into a man who could handle the physical grind of hockey. It was in Cupar that the first rink was 44 feet by 100 feet, and that was the first ice surface Shore would skate on. In 1922, his team won the Southern Championship against Moose Jaw and played Melville in the provincial final. The display Shore put on would eventually lead to the Melville millionaires asking Shore to play for them in the 1923-24 season. He would accept and led them to the Saskatchewan Senior Championship in his first year. This was not a professional league, so Shore worked as a fireman for the railway during that time. In 1927, he debuted with the Boston Bruins after spending time in the WCHL. In his first season, he had 12 goals and 6 assists for 18 points. Along with those 18 points, he had 130 penalty minutes, which was a record for the time. His influence was seen immediately as he helped the team reach its first Stanley Cup in 1929. Arguably the most famous of the incidents on the ice for sure was on December 12, 1933, when he hit Ace Bailey of the Toronto Maple Leafs from behind. Bailey's head hit the ice, knocking him out and putting his body into convulsions. This incident came as a result of King Clancy upending Shore with a check as he rushed up the ice. Shore, looking back at Clancy, rushed Bailey, mistaking him for Clancy. After the hit on Bailey, Red Horner punched Shore so hard his head hit the ice, knocking him out as well, and resulting in seven stitches. Bailey was rushed to the hospital with a fractured skull and had to go to the operating room for four hours. There was speculation he would die, and while he was in a coma for ten days, he did make a full recovery, but never played professionally again. Ace would eventually regain consciousness and was being attended to by doctors. Shore, also regained consciousness, went into the dressing room to apologize to Bailey, saying, quote, Ace, I'm sorry. I had no reason to do that to you. I hope you forgive me. Bailey responded that it was all part of the game before losing consciousness again. The first All-Star Benefit game was held on February 14, 1934 to raise money for Bailey and his family. With nearly $21,000 raised, or $401,000 today, at the game, Bailey and Shore shook hands and embraced at center ice. The crowd cheered, but the incident would stay with Shore for the rest of his life. Bailey would later say, I hold no grudge. I see Eddie often when he comes to Toronto for the games. It was just one of those things that happens. In 1939, Shore would win a second Stanley Cup and then retired and bought the Springfield Indians of the AHL. The Bruins then approached Shore about coming back to the team, offering him $200 per game, or about $5,200 today. He played only four games before deciding his heart wasn't in it. He would obtain permission to play in home games for the Springfield Indians, and after pushing to play in row games, he was traded to the New York Americans, despite owning the Indians. As a result, he played with the Americans until their elimination from the playoffs, and then played for the Indians in their playoff games. 
In six games over six nights, he played three games for the Americans and three games for the Indians. And on March 24, 1939, he would play in his final NHL game against the Detroit Red Wings. Over the course of his career, Shore won two Stanley Cups and was awarded the Hart Trophy four times. Only Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky have won it more. He also won the Hart Trophy more than any other defenseman in history. And over the course of his NHL career, he had 105 goals, 179 assists, and 284 points in 550 games. On March 15, 1985, Shore was visiting his son in Springfield when he began to vomit up blood. He was rushed to the hospital and died the next day from liver cancer. Shore has been honored extensively throughout his life for his contributions to hockey. In 1947, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame and his number two was retired by the Bruins that same year. He won the Lester B. Patrick Award for contributions to hockey in the United States in 1970. In 1975, he was inducted into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame, and in 2006, he was inducted into the AHL Hall of Fame. In 1998, he ranked number 10 on the list of the 100 greatest hockey players of all time, the highest of any pre-World War II player. In 2017, he was part of the first group of players to be named as one of the 100 greatest NHL players in history. His name was even dropped in the classic movie, Slapshot. We're losing! Teamwork, guys. More teamwork. They're burying us alive! Eddie Shore? Oh, piss on Eddie Shore! Old-time hockey? Piss on old-time hockey! You're blowing it! On December 21st, Howie Morenz was born in Mitchell, Ontario. As a child, he began to play hockey on the Thames River, using a homemade hockey stick and chunks of coal for pucks. By eight, he was playing in his first organized hockey game. Playing as a goaltender, he led in 21 goals and was soon switched to the position of Rover. He would still play goal, and in one game, when the score was 3-3, he stopped a shot, saw an opening, and took the puck down the ice while wearing his padding to score the winning goal. By the time he began his junior career, he was playing as a forward to take advantage of his incredible speed on the ice. In 1923, he played in the CNR Hockey Tournament in Montreal, where he scored nine goals. He was seen by a friend of the owner of the Montreal Canadiens who told his friend about the new phenom. Leo Danderon went to see Morenz play the next month and immediately wanted him to sign with the Canadiens. He would meet Morenz and his family, who said they wanted Morenz to finish his apprenticeship with the CNR for another two years. But on July 7, 1923, Morenz signed a contract with the Canadiens for three years worth $3,500 per year or $1,000 on a signing bonus. With the contract signed on the 7th day of the 7th month, Morenz chose to wear 7 for the Canadians. By the end of the 1923-24 season, Morenz had 13 goals with 3 assists in 24 games. He also helped the team finish first for the first time in 5 years. Playing for the NHL Championship, Morenz helped the team win against the Ottawa Senators and advanced to play for the Stanley Cup against the Vancouver Maroons and the Calgary Tigers. They defeated the Maroons and in the first game against Calgary, Morenz scored 3 goals. Montreal won the first game 6-1 and the second game 3-0, with Morenz scoring four goals in total. Morenz, in his first season, had won the Stanley Cup. The season after his marriage, 1927-28, would be the best Morenz ever had. He would become the first player to reach 50 points in a season, finishing with 51. He led the league in goals, assists, and points, and won the Hart Trophy. In 1929-30, he scored 40 goals in the season, including five goals in a game against the New York Americans on March 18, 1930. He then led the Canadians to the Stanley Cup, including scoring the cup-winning goal. In 1930-31, Morenz once again scored 50 points and won his second NHL scoring title and his second Hart Trophy. 
In the playoffs, he took the Canadians to the Stanley Cup final against the Chicago Blackhawks. And playing with an injured shoulder, he only had one goal in 10 playoff games, but his one goal was the last one in the playoffs, helping the Canadians win another Stanley Cup, Morenz's third. In 1931-32, Morenz had 49 points, finishing third in league scoring, and he became the first NHL player to win the Hart Trophy for a third time. That season, on March 17, 1932, he scored his 334th point, passing Cy Denony for the most career points by an NHL player. On January 2, 1934, Morenz twisted his ankle in a game, tearing a ligament and forcing him to miss a month. When he returned to the ice, he could no longer play at his current level, and he was booed by the fans. On October 3, 1934, he was traded to the Chicago Blackhawks. And in his first season with the Blackhawks, he played 48 games and finished with 34 points. Then, on January 26, 1936, he was traded to the New York Rangers, where he had 6 points in 19 games. After the season was over, the Canadians brought back Cecil Hart to coach the team, and he said he would take the job, but only if Morenz was back on the Canadians. This was agreed to, and Morenz was with the Canadians for the 1936-37 season and did quite well with 20 points by the midpoint of the season. Unfortunately, on January 28, 1937, in a game against the Blackhawks, Morenz went into the corner to get a puck and lost his balance and fell to the ice. He crashed into the boards and his left skate caught on the wood siding. A Chicago Blackhawks defenseman could not stop and slammed into Morenz, and it was said you could hear the snapping of Morenz's leg throughout the stadium. His leg had broken in four places, and on March 8th, Morenz complained of chest pains when he was in the hospital. Then at 11.30pm, he attempted to get out of bed to go to the bathroom, but collapsed on the floor, suffering a coronary embolism from blood clots in his broken leg. Within minutes, he was dead. On March 9th, the Montreal Canadiens game was cancelled in honour of Morenz, but Mary Morenz insisted the game be played as it was her husband, as it is what her husband would have wanted. On March 11th, a funeral was held at the Montreal Forum for Morenz, and he was situated in a casket at Centre Ice. A total of 50,000 people filed by to pay their respects. Howie Morenz never returned to the Montreal Canadiens. Forty days after the game against Chicago, he got out of his hospital bed, tried to walk, collapsed, and died. He was only 34. The city of Montreal was in shock. Howie Morenz's body was taken to the forum so his fans could say goodbye. 15,000 people. It was very, very quiet, nevertheless, in the forum. Eh? Well, Morenz played his best hockey and Trailed the uh, thousands of people over the years. Over the course of his NHL career, Morenz had 472 points, 271 goals, and 201 assists in 550 games, and he was one of the first nine players inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. In 1950, he was named the best hockey player of the first half of the 20th century. Some events occurred this year without specific dates. Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier had an eye to the future when he signed an agreement with Marconi, the inventor of the wireless communication system that used Morse code, to construct a transatlantic communication facility and the tools for communication for lighthouses and sailing stations to communicate. Two years later, he would sign a contract with the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of Canada to operate a network of radio telegraphy stations, known today as marine band radios, 
creating the first network of wireless radio transmission systems in the world. In 1904, there were six stations, and by 1915, there were 21. In 1902, the Chinese head tax had not slowed Chinese immigration, and the Sir Wilfrid Laurier government doubled the tax from $50 to $100. That same year, a second inquiry called the Royal Commission on Chinese and Japanese Immigration was formed, and it suggested that the tax be increased to $500. This huge increase made the tax equal to the cost of two homes at the time, and it was and it was implemented in 1903. The year 1902 proved to be a watershed year in the history of the Dukabors in Canada, as Peter Verrigan had arrived in Canada. By this point, the Dukabors represented the largest single mass migration of a group in Canadian history. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1902. Next week, we're looking at 1903. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.